My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Welcome back to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I'm Jason P. Woodbury, and I am very glad to be with you and bring you this week's conversation with producer, television music maker, radio host, and overall interesting guy, Ben Vaughn. His new album is called The World of Ben Vaughn. It was released physically on vinyl back on Record Store Day and digitally earlier this month. Rooted in gentle strums, much of its sweetly traditional songcraft was recorded out at Vaughn's Relay Shack studio in the Mojave Desert, and it echoes the most rustic of selections he plays on his mid-century focused radio show, The Many Moods of Ben Vaughn. Uh, ben has produced all sorts of incredible artists, people like Arthur Alexander, Nancy Sinatra, Charlie Feathers, and many more, as well as collaborating with Alex Chilton and Alan Vega of Suicide. For this episode, we spoke about his new album, his work as a television uh, music maker on shows like Third Rock from the Sun, and producing Ween's irreverent cult classic, 12 Golden Country Greats. Uh, we talk about a lot more, too. All right, so let's head into the talk. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. We're very glad to have you here. Asking. Asking for a friend. Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and, as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million-plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Ben, thanks so much for taking the time to join us here on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. Congrats on the release of The World of uh, Ben Vaughn, which was released on Record Store Day and has a wider release. Uh, by the time this airs, it will be out and available for all. So congrats on that. Thank you very much. You have made a lot of records. Uh, you made this one on your own, just you, right? Yes, I'm playing all the instruments on it. How do you how do you like that that process? Is that a comfortable uh, is that a comfortable working environment for you? A comfortable working format? It is because the beginning of my experimentation with recording when I was a teenager, that's exactly how I did it. A friend of mine had a reel to reel tape recorder. He wasn't a musician. And but he wanted to engineer, so I started recording with him when I was about fifteen or sixteen years old. And we would, I would play drums, bass, guitar, sing, play harmonica or whatever, <clears throat> and we would bounce the tracks 
and do multi-track recording. So I actually started out that way. Yeah, yeah. Because at that time, that would have been 1970 or 71, the first Paul McCartney album came out, the Emmett Rhodes album came out, and I was really crazy about that Dave Edmonds album, Rock Pile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With I Hear, with I Hear You Knocking, and he's playing all the instruments on that record, and that's a rock and roll record. Right. Like a real, real rock and roll record. So I had, I had, um, I was inspired by th those artists at that moment who were, and that was a brand new thing back then. It was really hard to do. Yeah, it's not as easy as it is. I mean, it still requires finesse and all of that now, but the tools are much more evolved. It's a lot easier to kind of like line stuff up on the grid and all of that. But yeah, you really did have to. One of the things that's interesting to me is you cited that Emmett Rhodes record, and and I think a lot about that one is like a one of those kind of early precursors of the almost like bedroom pop thing, you know, where it's just like somebody on their own making a thing. But so often like a solo record, a record where everybody, where one person is playing all the instruments can almost end up feeling kind of like hermetic and sealed in. And, and this, this record doesn't sound like that yours. It sounds, it sounds like there's a lot of life in it. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I really enjoyed making it. I, um, I like working that way. I haven't done it in a long time. I've, I've made a few one-man band records in my career, but the last one I did was probably 25 years ago. Yeah, so it had been a minute. It had been a minute. Yes, it had. And um, I, I really got into it. It was a lot of fun. Did you... Uh, you you've got a place, if I understand right, you've got a place in Santa Monica and then a place out in the Mojave Desert. Is that right? That's correct. So I wonder, you know, you're a guy who music and cars are kind of synonymous uh, when people talk about you. You made a record, I think, 97's uh, Rambler 65 in a car. Uh, you had the recording equipment in a car. Yeah, um, true. But I wonder, I mean, do you, do you, do you road test your, your recordings? Is that, is that a helpful, uh, like, uh, you know, editing tool or, or quality control situation? Do you, do you tend to listen to your own stuff on the road? Yeah, I make a lot of my decisions on a final mix uh, while I'm driving. <clears throat> I also write my songs while I'm driving a lot of the time. No kidding. How do you yeah. how, how do you do that? Well, I write in my head. I get the idea for my <laughs> for a song, and we'll either I'll either be driving or or walking, and a song will come to me, and the whole thing will be will be written by the time I get home. And then then I pick up the guitar and I figure out what chords need to support that finished idea. Yeah, so it's usually more like a like a melody and lyrics. You're not you're not you you're not one of those dudes who can do chords in your head necessarily, or you can sort of. I can. I know. I know. I know pretty much what's going <laughs> to work under it while I'm singing. I mean, and Arthur Alexander, one of my heroes, um, he he was a so great songwriter and did not play an instrument. He wrote everything in his head, and he would sing it to people, and they would play the chords. And I worked with him, and at one point. He was singing a melody to me, and I tried to stick a fancy chord in there, and it just would not work. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> because it was it was complete. It was a composed thing. Yeah, yeah. That, that fancy chord, uh, you couldn't put it in. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of how I write. It's it's really you know I'm a I'm a very simple artist in a lot of ways, and um, like Roger Miller or Tom T. Hall, they. I can imagine them writing their songs in their head. Sure. Like, I can't even imagine them trying real hard when they write either. Do you, are you one of those guys who, who pulls out 
uh his iphone and and makes like voice memos too is that a handy way to keep track of melodic ideas i do now i used to pull over and go to a payphone. oh no kidding <laughs> and call home <laughs> yeah yeah and you know it's interesting um that now that we're talking about this the origin of my method <clears throat> for songwriting goes back to when i was a landscaper when I got out of high school, I didn't go to college. I, I went right into the manual labor field. I worked sure. in a factory and then I worked as a landscaper for about five years. And when you're a landscaper, it's really great because you can get all your work done, whether you're shoveling mulch or you're mowing a lawn or you're trimming trees, you can do it without thinking. Yeah. So, so your mind is free all day long. Right. To, to daydream all over the place. And I started writing songs in my head. And that was bef before answering machines. So I would go to the truck and write them down. Sure, sure. And, and try to remember the melody in my head. And then when I would go home, I would get the guitar out. So that's how I, I actually started writing songs, really. Yeah, yeah. And now you've been doing so for, for a very long time. Yeah, daydreaming, really, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the relationship obviously between uh people's uh imagination, right? And and their creative center or or whatever. You know, I I'm always fascinated by by that relationship, but I really do find and I think it's, you know, borne out by the kind of conversations I often have on this show that that really what what's required for creativity often is not you coming up with some incredible way to achieve a thing what seems more fruitful for a lot of people at least is almost turning the part of your head off that does thinking you know and just sort of letting the stuff that bubbles up from real deep down you know come up and and see what kind of grabs you in that way you know what i mean like i mean i'm sure you find it where you're writing a song before you realize you're writing a song that's absolutely true. Yeah. And, um, it's not really an intellectual pursuit for me. Right. It's, um, it's coming from another place. And I know it's a cliche to say that, you know, I'm a conduit and I'm visited by the muse or I have an antenna and it's picking up signals and all I'm doing is reporting, but it kind of is true in my, in my case that I'm just trying to chase down the ideas that I'm visited by. Sure. Sure. And, and I, and I try to, catch them before they just visit and go away i want them to visit and and stay and be documented you know right yeah yeah. so you can get a you know get a whole get a whole record out of them if if you're lucky <laughs> yeah and i'm sure i'm not the only person who works this way you probably do it when you're writing a column all of a sudden you look at it and go hey i guess i'm done yeah i Listen. mean it's the best feeling in the world right <laughs> yeah yeah because you turned your mind off and you went with your instinct and that in those moments we're kind of like animals and we're just going by instinct yeah. as opposed to, you know, uh, conscious thought and uh, strategy or anything like that. You mentioned Arthur Alexander. Are there other uh, music? I mean, we, you know, you and I first, I think, spoke uh, regarding your work with Alex Chilton and uh, Alan Vega, another artist to uh, Vega especially, but both of them really instinct was the thing right that's the that was what was driving them they weren't there to intellectualize at all um are there other musicians who were particularly instructive in terms of uh 
kind of in you know showing you that path or were there were there specific people who helped you get there that's interesting uh doug psalm would be one. Oh yeah yeah definitely uh, a, a guy in the moment all the time to the detriment of his career because he would forget to promote something because he was just <laughs> on to an idea or excited about something, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I love him. And um, as far as writers go, you know, Roger Miller, Tom T. Hall, Chuck Berry. Chuck yeah. Berry now, Chuck Berry, he achieved the impossible. His lyrics, like Brown-Eyed Handsome Man or Too Much Monkey Business, are so chock full of details and great writing but it sounds like he spent no time on it because it's just, it sounds fresh. Like even now, if you hear Johnny Be Good on the radio, at first you go, oh, Johnny Be Good, whatever. And halfway through, you're like, oh my God, <laughs> I've heard this song a million times and it's still amazing every time, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's absolutely the case. He's one of those, one of those guys where it's just like, I mean, like if that's that thing, right? Where when you turn off the part of your brain that stops things from happening you know and just sort of go with the part that that understands i mean music is such a visceral thing and uh it really does come from if not our subconscious some other place you know um something that i found really interesting though is I, you kind of made this record the many moves uh well sorry i i'm re referencing your radio show before I, <laughs> before i meant to and you have an album called the same but um as long as you're not confusing me with someone else, I'm fine with it. You know? <laughs> well, that's one handy uh, trick that you 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 manage to make all of your uh, your album titles. You fit your name in very well, so it's easy to keep keep track of who I'm listening to. You know. Um, yeah, it's kind of like Bob Hope, the Bob Hope Desert Classic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that was a that was a real inspiration to me. Like, wow, you know, like, it just sounds great. You know, his name on top of it, Bob Hope Christmas Special. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's 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 key. Uh, it's key for that 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 branding situation. Now with social media, our names are our brands. You know, in so many ways, uh, which is often pretty depressing. But um, <laughs> but something I, I wanted to to ask about was that I mean, you kind of made this record with the vinyl format in mind right i mean this was a, a record that as it came together you sort of realized that this was meant to be a side a side b kind of classic long player that's right um when i when a record store when record store day told me that i'm in if i if i can get a record manufactured they would love to have me be part of it i was in the middle of recording and I was at the beginning of recording this record and I thought, oh, wow, I'm going to make an LP with a side one and a side two. Yeah. Which when I first got into the business in 1986, my first album came out, that was the only format that existed. So my first album and every album I had listened to up until CDs were invented had a side A and a side B. And it was a very important thing to have that intermission in there because a lot of times, I don't know, you're probably this way. You buy an album and you listen to side one maybe three times before you even turn it over. Well, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'm I'm notorious sometimes for listening to a side over and over again. Yeah, yeah, and that was how I knew to make a record, how to sequence a record, and how to think about what songs will be on it. And when the CD came around, you would have twelve songs in a row, which is probably too many for a lot of artists because after about seven or eight. A lot of people sound the same. 
Sure. Each, each song <laughs> starts to sound the same. That's why the intermission is so important because you can put on a record and um, really fall in love with side A. And then when you flip it over, you have a whole other exploration, you know, a whole other discovery ahead of you. Yeah, I remember one night hanging out with my buddy. I was pretty young when this happened, but I remember hanging out with my buddy Zane, who um, is one of my longtime best friends. I remember listening to Ziggy Stardust, the, the I'm listening to the David Bowie Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. And uh, he has one of those record players where the tone arm just resets, you know, back to the back to the beginning. Mm hmm. And uh, we we listened for like an hour, you know, but just to side A. <laughs> and I yeah. and I remember saying it's so cool that your record player can somehow automatically go to the other side. And he was like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> and, I <was> like, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh!" I, and all of a sudden, I realized, you know what I mean, that we had just been listening to the same songs over and over again. But I was so enthralled with them. So yeah, that's that 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 that's a that's a classic way to go about it. On your radio show, you you famously you know talk about playing from what are often considered obsolete formats right eight tracks and cassettes and i, I i'm do you play cds as well ben yeah 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 so you're you're there with all all the different physical formats and i wonder as somebody who has uh you know kind of like weathered the 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 passing of trends and formats as trends uh if you had to pick a pick one is it vinyl for you is vinyl sort of like the the preferred medium at the end of the day oh definitely yeah definitely yeah cassette yeah. cassettes always felt disposable to me a track tapes amused me um a lot of good good bass a track tapes were very deep sounding yeah i, ne I never i never uh I never ragged on eight track tapes. The uh, the changing programs in the middle of a song is a little annoying, but I have fond, really fond memories of my brother's van and and uh, the eight the uh, James Gang live at Carnegie Hall album. Oh yeah, <laughs> so you're talking you're talking what kind of? Tell me about this van. Well, my brother was a motorhead. Yeah, he a total motorhead. Like he knew how to rebuild an engine by the time he was fifteen, and we lived next door to a gas station. Barry Sonoco, and he worked over there, and I hung out over there, and it was great because it was a bunch of greasers who only listened to oldies radio, and um, so I learned a lot from those guys. Yeah, but my but my brother had a van. I forget what kind of van it was now. But it was and, but uh, it was a cool van, I imagine. Oh, totally tricked out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's 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 what I was going for. That's what I was that's what I was getting after. I was going to ask, was it airbrushed? But I mean, you know, you can keep that to yourself in, unless you really want to share that information. It was, and he hired a guy um, who was unreliable, so it only was half airbrushed. <laughs> that's, a per that's a perfect, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, he kind of got high and wandered off, and we never saw him again. <laughs> that, that, that sounds like something from, I mean, you, you did music on that 70s show. That sounds like a plot from that 70s show or something, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah the airbrush guy who comes into town like a drifter. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing that's amazing well so what's your relationship with digital music like ben do you use the services and and streaming and all that too yeah um you know i, I for me it's all about music um if sure. I, I if i can hear the song i don't care wh what format it you know that it arrives whether it's on youtube or whether it's itunes um or whether it's a 45 or even a cassette or a track whatever i mean I want the song. So I've never really been a snob as far as that goes, but I prefer vinyl. Yeah. Cause it's, it's like, 
it's the most um i don't know the texture the um the, what's the word i'm looking for the um sense of touch whatever you call that yeah the tactile the, element of that's it. it yeah that's it yeah yeah the tactile element it's just too good to be true it just feels good holding the cover yeah you know reading the liner notes or looking at the pictures i mean it's a it's a full experience yeah absolutely absolutely and i mean i i feel that with you know a lot of formats right but liner notes are never great with cassettes or are rarely great with cassettes you know um liner notes really the vinyl format suits liner notes very very well that's that's for sure yeah because you can you can have them a, a lot of copy and the, and the uh, type size doesn't have to be reduced. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's awesome. So uh, when did when did you when did you get your place out in in the desert? Uh, when when was that? When did you when did you uh, the Relay Shack? Where did that? When did that enter the picture? Nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, I was do I was doing music for Third Rock from the Sun in that seventies show at the same time. And then I accepted a third show, and I was I was hot for a while there as a composer. So, <laughs> so, I, I still don't understand how it happened. Um, it has a lot to do with Pulp Fiction becoming a very popular movie, and then all of a sudden my style of guitar playing was what everybody wanted, and I just happened to be in town. Sure. And not only could I play like, that way, but I was a composer, and I also knew how to take a meeting. So. <laughs> I mean, you're you're the you're a triple threat, yeah. <laughs> yeah and i got really hot and i was represented by a creative artist agency and the whole bit i mean it was really big but i was under so much pressure because the deadlines are really super serious i mean you know what you're working on on a wednesday is going to be on national tv the next tuesday yeah and if you're doing more than one show you're working all the time but the great thing about the sitcom world is they really took weekends seriously everybody nobody worked on weekends you worked like crazy monday through friday like 14 hour days but nobody worked on weekends so i started going out to joshua tree and staying at a motel and hiking and then i decided to look for a place out there and that kept me sane going out there every weekend yeah that's it's uh, it, I've done that drive a few times, right? Leaving LA to go to, to Joshua Tree or Palm Springs or whatever. And if it's the wrong time of day, it can get really hairy, right? It'll get stuck in traffic. But if you time it right, it's an incredible little drive. Pretty, uh, like probably a good reset in and of itself, right? It is. I, I always drive at night. Yo, and yeah. And what I would, what I would do is I would leave the studio a lot. Like I was doing most of the, most of my work at the Radford lot in Studio City, the CBS radford lot and i would leave there on a friday night and drive you know get out to the desert by around one in the morning and then wake up there waking up there is the is the magic yeah that's the magic do you and I, oh go ahead sorry no so i bought a place out there in the middle of nowhere like way past everything uh in, in a place called wonder valley which is now being discovered by uh influencers <laughs> yeah, the 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 whole Mojave is 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 infiltrated by by influencers. I know. Yeah, my friend. Yeah, my, my friend my Ken Lane on Desert Oracle. You know, it's a frequent uh, it's a frequent point of complaint on his program. Yeah, <laughs> his, his show is very popular out there. We're we're on the same radio station. I know. I. That's amazing to me. Yeah, that that's such a cool thing. I I'm I'm a big fan of both radio programs. Yours, you've got um. 
easily one of the the best DJ voices in the biz for sure. <laughs> thank you. Hugely, hugely uh, uh, pleasurable voice to listen to. Yeah. Well, thank you. Did you like making music for TV? I did. I did. Um, the schedule was uh, what I didn't like. I, I didn't like the amount of work and the intensity of it um, as much as, but I really enjoyed the people and I really enjoyed being part of something that was um, Hollywood, you know, it was actually Hollywood. Yeah. And I couldn't, and it was like, it was pretty weird because I, every now and then I go, wow, I'm like, I made it in Hollywood. Well, you know, what the heck? <laughs> sure. <You know>? Sure. <laughs> it's like, it's like, um, you know, I'm from New Jersey and, um, you know, the minute third rock from the sun went on the air, it was, an, it was immediately, it was a hit. And I went back to Jersey to visit. And of course you can guess my nickname immediately became Mr. Hollywood. Sure. Sure. <laughs> hey, Mr. Hollywood. What's up? How you doing? Hey, Mr. Big shot. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 And you had to and take I, that in stride. And for once it wasn't ironic. I actually was Mr. Hollywood, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was really funny. Yeah. That's incredible. You know, it's something that I thought about in regards to your work is that, um, Cubist Blues, the record you made with Alan Vega and Alex Chilton, and then also uh, Alan Vega after Dark, are two examples of you and a group being in uh, the studio and just uh, having to uh, just get into it. Both of those records cut in one night, right? Am, am I am I recalling correctly? Uh, Cubist Blues was cut in two nights, and after dark was cut in one night uh we got better at it alan and i yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> but if, if there would have been another one it would have been cut in half a day right it would already be done just by the time this conversation yeah, exactly 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 and that probably would have suited alan very well he liked to be you know um but no i wonder if the tv if the if the the rigorous pace you know something that i always found like when i worked in um I worked at an alt weekly and I had to write a lot during the week, you know, um, uh, maybe not quite as intense as, uh, as your, your TV music schedule, but, but considerable, right? You had to really crank a lot of stuff out. And I found that one thing when I look back on, you know, how it affected me as a, as a writer and as a thinker, that kind of pace almost ends up for me at least, right, it made me a lot less precious about my writing, um, meaning I wanted it to be good, and I, and I, I wanted it to, to, to stand up to, to you know, uh, a, a good hard read, but I also, when you work in that kind of slipstream, you, you just, it's like, well, maybe I'll, I'll write something a little better next week, but I have to let, just let this thing go, you know what I mean? It's got to go to press right now, um, did you yeah, I learned did, I learned that too and, and I learned that your first idea has to be your only idea because there's no time for <laughs> yeah. for second takes you know you can't you can't rethink and it's great it really worked out great for me now it, it could have gone another way if if I was a different type of person or if you were a different type of person you might not have responded well to that sure Sure. And you could have had a, a total nervous breakdown and quit the business entirely. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean that that yeah that that oh, that nearly happened many times though, of course, uh, as I'm sure <laughs> as I'm sure it did for you too, right? I mean it's a stressful situation. Yeah, I had my moments. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but did, oh, go but ahead. it was great though. No, it was great because um, 
I don't know if this happened to you, but I, 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 I've never had a writer's block since. Yeah, I mean, there it's it's rare for me. Like now, what I call writer's block is usually uh, laziness. You know what I mean? I mean that like ge- genuinely. It, it means like I don't want to put in any amount of effort because I do typically find that if I sit down and I go, okay, quit, you know, quit uh, delaying, get to it. I do find, yeah, the, the stuff starts to come. You know, which is a which is a blessing for sure. Yeah. Did you, you know, uh, do you find, though, that that first thought, best thought thing, does that does that typically uh, carry through? Is that the way it works when you're making a record like the world of Ben Vaughn? Yeah, pretty much. I, I'm I have um, I'm lucky because I can hear the instrumentation in my head. Yeah. Before before I even record. And, you know, I think this is good. This is going to be good with a 12 string guitar. You know, dr- drums with brushes, a bass, and maybe uh, maybe a harmonica in the bridge, yeah, and a, yeah. a keyboard part or something like that. I can kind of hear it in my head, and I've always been that way because when I was a kid, I would listen to AM radio constantly because I was sick a lot when I was a kid, and I grew up in New Jersey where in the winter it gets very cold in the winter, and our uh, the the second floor of the house we lived in didn't have heat, so my parents put a cot in the living room downstairs where there was heat because I was sick all the time and they gave me a transistor radio to keep me company. Yeah. And I listened to the top 40 in the sixties. I know, you know, every song note for note and to amuse myself, I would pick out all the instruments and I thought everyone could do that. Yeah. Wow. And I would, um, be hanging out with my friends and a song would come on the radio and I go, that's really interesting. They're like, what's that? And I go, well, that harmonica in the middle part there, I didn't, I didn't hear that coming. That's, that's interesting. And they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah. How- <laughs> I was like, you know, I was like, well, there's a harmonica solo in there. And I it seems actually inappropriate to me. I actually had opinions like that's not, that's not a well-produced record, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like eight years old or something, you know, <laughs> you're describing your origin story. It's incredible. Yeah. 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 I was very opinionated. I was like, well, that, that could have sounded better. Or they could have got a, a singer could have, maybe that key is too high for that guy, you know? Yeah. Had, yeah. So that, I, I had a, that proved tuned, that, yeah, tuned in ear, you know? So that must have, uh, that must have like proved very, very useful as you became a producer. Uh, that thing you're talking about, about sort of like hearing the arrangement in your head, hearing the accompaniment in your head, does that work when it's other people's songs too uh, sometimes? Oh, definitely. What was the what was the first record you produced? Produced? It was um I was in a band called the Sick Kids. I was the drummer, a <laughs> punk band called the Sick Kids in the early 80s, a Philadelphia punk band. They, they were around in the 70s. But I joined in 1980, maybe 1981. And we went into the studio with a guy who was supposed to be the producer. And um, he was really hands off. He, he didn't even show up one day. So I ended up uh, communicating with the engineer because the record, the, the engineer was trying to make us sound better than we were. <laughs> yeah. Like like he was trying to make us sound like the police or something. Sure, sure. <laughs> trying to give a little bit of a sophistication and spit shine to the proceedings. Yeah, he, was, he put chorus on the guitar. Yeah. And um, <laughs> the, the other guys in the band were like, oh, wow. We don't sound like ourselves. And I, you know, I basically said permission to speak. 
And uh, I told the engineer, you know, to take it off. And then the next thing you know, I'm sitting with the engineer. And we finished the record and mixed it. I didn't get a production credit, but that was the first time I realized that you need someone in there between the artist and the engineer. Yeah. You really need someone. Yeah. And that I, I probably had the the knowledge or the information to to be that guy. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. I I, I want to ask you about on the topic of production, you know, uh, I think the first thing I ever heard uh, of <laughs> of your work was was Ween's uh, Twelve Golden Country Greats, which I heard <laughs> in si- oh, in man. like uh, in I think in seventh grade, a friend had a a Walkman or a cassette, whatever those were called, right? I think a Walkman, um, and uh, he played me uh, "Piss Up a Rope." on uh on this this little tape player at lunch and i have to tell you ben i was scandalized i was um i was <laughs> i was thrilled by it but i was also completely shocked that such a thing existed um and then it was it was i didn't even put two and two together to be honest until around the time that you and i started talking for uh when we talked about Cubist Blues, that's when I sort of realized, like, oh man, this dude had something to do with uh, with twelve golden country greats. Um, wh- how did how did you meet the Ween guys? Do you remember? I almost remember. I've known them so long. It's you know when you know when, sure. when you know people so long, you can't remember exactly how you met. But yeah, I used to play a club in Trenton, New Jersey, called City Gardens, and we played there like every Friday. Friday night, and they also had a lot of hardcore shows there on Sunday afternoons, big ones, you know, um, kind of legendary. There's a book about the place, actually. It's called No Slam Dancing. Yeah. And um, it was a, a really great punk club, and I used to play there all the time, and the Ween guys would come. They were underage kids, and they would come. So I met them then, and then Mickey was a guest on a friend of mine's radio show at Trenton State and got him kicked off the air because he cursed on the air. <laughs> so Mickey got my friend kicked off. So I knew Mickey as a teenager. He was still in high school when I met him. And I remember he gave me a tape and he said, hey, this is my th- the thing I'm doing with my friend Aaron. We're calling ourselves Ween. And it was a ca- cassette of them in- inhaling he- helium and laughing. <laughs> yeah. And nothing else. And so, like, me being me, I said, you know, come back to me when you have some songs, kids, you know? Sure, <laughs> so I was, sure. I was, like, I was like the elder statesman, you know? And, um, and they did. I mean, we stayed in touch, and I became a fan. When they started making records, I couldn't believe how great they were. So we became reacquainted and became friends. And Mickey and I spent a lot of time together doing, you know, recording. I was still living back in Jersey back then, so we would just hang out and mess around with this four-track cassette deck there and and then when they when they made when they wanted to make a country album you know i was i was down in nashville before i moved out here to la i was experimenting as a a writer on music row uh bmi um hooked me up with some writers who had gold records on their walls you know big time writers and i was co-writing country songs it didn't really work out because i was too weird you know and they, and, sure and, yeah. and they all told they, they they made sure i knew it <laughs> <laughs> yeah they told, one guy called me a beatnik which i thought was 
great. Oh, that's incredible. <clears throat> wait, 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 we're talking. This is the this is the nineties. Yeah, early nineties. Yeah, getting called a beatnik in the early nineties is is pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was, uh, and I was writing with Rodney Crowell. Though Rodney and I became friends, and we and they knew about all about what I was doing in Nashville. So when they decided they wanted to make a country album, they wanted to really do it. So they called me up and said, "Will you produce us?" And I said, "Yeah, only if we go to Nashville and we use like the cream of the crop of the old school session guys, because they're all going to retire in a few years." from the musicians union and then it's over you will not be able to make a record with these guys right and um they love the idea and we went down there and we cut that record i think in two days maybe so three days and I, yeah i was i was gonna ask how long that one took another another pretty quick uh another pretty quick situation there yeah well i mean so on one hand it makes perfect sense right because the uh because the the players that you were working with were legit nashville killers right oh man they, they played on patsy klein records i mean a drummer on pretty woman by roy orbison was a drummer we used on that record you know it, yeah uh, that's that's next level that's what an yeah, what, what an insane yeah, situation yeah pig robbins on piano charlie mccoy i mean these guys are on a million records including bob dylan and um yeah did yeah, you... <laughs> it was it was really great. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm well. On one hand, so so were the Ween dudes. I mean, in the, in the studio, were were they were they working on their parts uh, at the same time? I mean, were they tracking right alongside these guys, or was it a situation where you're like, let's get the the basics down and then we'll we'll take things elsewhere? Or was it all going on at the same time? Well, they didn't play on it. They just sing on it. They just sing on it. Yeah, that's what. I, that, yeah, right. There are two moments where Aaron takes a guitar solo on Fluffy. <laughs> <laughs> which is uh if your listeners haven't heard fluffy listen to that because that song is that's you know maybe the greatest piece of music ever written and watching these session players these serious heavy duty cats i mean their their resumes are unbelievable to watch them trying to record fluffy yeah <laughs> and finally when we got it when we got it done we're all sitting there and then Aaron says, okay, now slow the tape down because that's, that's what it's going to sound like. And we slowed it down and the session guys are like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was a beautiful moment. Yeah. That's incredible. It would, I mean, that record is, is, is pretty crass, right? There's no getting around it. There's some, there's some vulgarity on it. I mean, in a town like Nashville, where even a relatively clean cut and polite guy like you gets considered a beatnik, was there some trepidation and weirdness about the ween guys being uh too far out well when i approach the players i let them know that there's some blue material yeah that's the way to put it for sure yeah and if they objected tell me now you know and several people did not sign on to the project because of that but i warned everybody up front yeah and my favorite moment was pig robbins who died recently unfortunately um legendary piano player pig robbins he's and he's blind so he comes in the day of the session being led by the drummer gene chrisman gene gene was playing one of the days too and he comes in and he he goes where's ben where's ben so they bring him over and we shake hands and he goes so here we got some country motherfuckers in here <laughs> yes that's incredible <laughs> Yeah. So I said, so I said, so I take it you're, 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 you're down with this pig. And he goes, yeah, let's do this. 
<laughs> oh, that's that's wild. Did that? I mean, that record, like, for for on uh, like for multiple reasons, it's such a, it's such a fascinating album. Um, uh, the Ween the Ween dudes are are they're truly one of America's great idiosyncratic bands. There's there's nobody like them, you know. Other than them, they are their own a world unto themselves. But um, obviously, the playing on that record is just so good. It's such a it's such an immaculate, great country sounding record. Um, there's a there's obviously a traditional side to it, and then there's a sort of uh, their 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 kind of whacked out weird sensibility applied to it. But they mostly pretty pretty much played straight. Did you ever hear? Did you hear from like other Nashville people about that record after it came out? Did you get any interesting feedback? Well, a weird thing about it was Ween fans didn't like it at first. Did did they think it was it was too straight or it was too stuffy In- or? in tune I think. Yeah. how dare how dare you ben? <laughs> yeah it was kind of an outrageous thing because when we were making that record i said to those guys you know this is your trans yeah you know, yeah the, the neil the, young the, record which even neil young fans couldn't <laughs> handle when it first came out yeah yeah and maybe and maybe still um for ween to pick one genre of music and do an entire album first of all was sacrilege because their albums they go through everything from prince to Phil Collins, to Van Halen, before oh, yeah. a record is open. They are notoriously genre jumping from track to track, and they're really good at delivering the essentials in that particular style before they move on to another style. So that album actually um, was not embraced right away by Ween fans. They were confused by it. And the people in Nashville were a little upset that we used these you know great country players <laughs> to make such a such a, a vulgar album so you know, it was like you kind of couldn't like, win yeah well it, it, well but but actually conversely that was exactly what we hoped to achieve so we got what we wanted which was an album that, that confounded everyone right and and still does in some ways it's it's you know it's it's been accepted but it's <laughs> it's uh <laughs> it's it, it wow I mean, work, those those guys are geniuses. I mean, Mickey and Aaron, I, they work on a level. Talk about channeling. Um, they definitely work instinctually. Right, right. You know, so obviously uh, we've I've mentioned them a handful of times already, but but uh, Alex Chilton and um, I, I'm I'm curious how how you you first came in contact with him when we talked about Cubist Blues. I think you mentioned that. And I don't know if this is if if your opinion has changed, but you weren't like a big big star fan necessarily. You were more interested in Alex on the roots side of things. Is that right? That's absolutely right. I was a big box tops fan actually when I was a kid. Like I bought their forty five. Right, so, right. Um, to know the lead singer of the box tops was was enough for me. Right. Yeah. That's, a, yeah. that's like no, knowing the lead singer of the Buckinghams or something. I mean, it was a thrill for me because. I really loved those records as a kid, and I really liked what he did in New York in the late 70s with Bangkok and a lot of that crazy stuff he did up there, and he produced The Cramps. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What a, what an incredible time for him, for sure. So that's yeah, sort of yeah. when you—so, yeah, exactly. That's your, your, your radar is up at that point for him, for sure. And like Flies on Sherbert, I discovered that album when it came out, 1979, maybe? Yeah, 80? yeah. A friend of mine sent me a copy. He had a mail order record company, and he said, "This is something you need 
to know about and he just sent me a free copy and i flipped out over that record and big star i was familiar with big star but um i'm not a power pop guy that much you know sure sure like i like i love the beatles you know um i like the raspberries and big star okay and all that but it's really not what i really respond to and everybody's different and i just respond to stuff that is more about energy a lot of the time right and mood and um and not craft so much you know it's so interesting when i think about alex chilton because he he's kind of got like a there's like a two he's like two sides of a coin right because you do get that really shambolic unhinged stuff like flies or uh or bangkok the you know the sort of the orc singles that era the cramps record you do get this really wild man energy nutso stuff from him but then you also get in addition to that like the sort of later era of 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 chilton where he's almost in it like a chet baker mode right you know he's almost doing this sort of, which is not to say that that's not all about mood and all about feel and all about uh instinct it is but there's a sophistication to him as well he's just such a fascinating character and i wonder you know what it was like interacting with him as a player um the people i've talked to uh, who've played with him a lot of people mentioned that his guitar playing is just unreal and it's not always the most you know uh, cited fact about his his work that's true um his playing uh, what ended up on records of his guitar playing is only like uh, the tip of the iceberg of how great he really was. Yeah, yeah. And um, I met Alex. We were um, we had the same booking agent in the '80s, and I put out a record at the same week he put out an album. So the booking agent said, "I'm going to put you guys on tour together in the Midwest because both of these records are being worked at College Radio." And so we we went on tour. And we, I met him in the early '80s, but um, I didn't get to know him until, I guess it was 1987, and we were playing together every night. And so we would play guitars together in the dressing room, or go back to the hotel and play guitars. And we, we really started to really get along on a musical level. And one of the first things we bonded over was Alan Vega. Yeah. One of the first one of the first conversations about music we had was about Jukebox Baby by Alan Vega and how that was the greatest record ever made. Yeah. And we were uh and I kind of think that led to our musical friendship and our friendship in general was our love for Alan Vega. We really clicked on that. Yeah. And I, and I knew Alan and Alex was really impressed, you know, you actually know Alan Vega? And I was like, "Yes, I do." And um I guess it was in um, oh, 1994, Alan and I were going to go into the studio to cut a blues album. And I mentioned to Alex that I was going to go in with him and Alex volunteered to play guitar on it. And that's how it all came together. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, so how did you meet Alan initially? I was at the Ritz in the early 80s going I, in New York City. I was there to see someone else. And I was with this girl who was a huge suicide fan and she went to use the ladies room and she came running back and said you're not going to believe it alan vega's here and i told him about you so you got to come meet him and i'm like i'm not sure if i want to because i had seen suicide you know <laughs> yeah so you were maybe a little uh nervous to to, to interact well with he him. was a ferocious performer right 
Yeah. Uh, I saw suicide. My God. I mean, it was really like a confrontational, violent experience, you know? And, um, but she dragged me over. I didn't have a chance to even, you know, back out. Next thing you know, I'm being pushed, you know, toward Alan Vega. And he was the nicest guy in the world. Yeah. Surprise. And he was really interested in me and what I do. So I, he, he, he said, I'm going to give you my address. I want you to send me a cassette of, of what, what you're doing as a musician. So I did, and he called me at home, and he said, I'm going to play this for Rick Ocasek. I think he should produce you. And it never happened. But Alan immediately wanted, he was the most generous guy because he was being produced by Rick Ocasek at that time. Yeah, yeah. And he immediately wanted to share that good luck with me. Yeah. Someone he had, someone he had just met based on the fact that he liked my music it was like boom alan and i were instant friends and he was a mentor to me he was a really good mentor too because he was you know he, he was capable of tough love sure like I, I, like I remember one time i was saying to him oh gee alan it's, it's really great that you like my music you know and it, you actually took the time to listen to it because you know and he's like shut up <laughs> just shut up because you know you're good fucking act like it oh man yeah yeah <laughs> And I, and I was like, what? you're right. I'm wasting people's time with this false humility act here. You know, I got to, if I'm going to do this, I got to believe in myself. And I just got to like be out there with confidence. He wasn't putting up with it for one minute. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. He's, he's, that's, that's, I, now I want to, I'm just imagining like a, like a, like a Ben Vaughn, Rick Ocasek joint. Rick Ocasek was one of my favorites. So I, I'm, I'm imagining what that would have been like. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, something. Uh, 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 it's been it. It's been so much fun talking with you. And uh, and before we wrap up, though, I did. There was something else I wanted to. I really wanted to talk about because, as I understand it, when you were a kid, it was a. And please tell me if this story is apocryphal or flat out wrong. You know how things are on the internet, right? When you read something. And you ask somebody about it and they go, that that's not real, you know, or whatever. So it's like, correct me if I'm wrong, but your uncle gave you a Dwayne Eddy record as a kid. Is that right? That is correct. Um, I grew up outside of Camden, New Jersey, which was a town that was basically a, an RCA Victor town. RCA Camden. They owned, I think, 25 buildings, wow. factory buildings. And everyone in my family, both sides of my family, worked for RCA. And everyone I knew, their parents worked for RCA. It was a factory town, you know, a company town. And my uncle worked at the pressing plant. And at the door, when, you know, next to the time clock was a box of records, and you could take whatever you wanted. And he grabbed the Twistin' and Tryin' album by Dwayne Eddy and for some reason thought it would be a good idea to give it to me. It was the first record I ever owned, and I probably played it two thousand times. Yeah, yeah, and and that was be before the Beatles. Like I was a rock and roll nut before the Beatles, and I'm not really old enough to make that claim, except I am. Yeah, <laughs> but it, 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 it actually is true. You know, I was like a six year old kid who was in love with guitar instrumentals. No, oh, that's and uh, yeah, it really um, yeah, it's a true story. I am I'm I'm like very very fascinated particularly with Dwayne Eddy because I come from a 
I grew up in a town here in Arizona called Coolidge, Arizona. And uh, that's where he lived. Yeah. Well, yeah. So not only was he there on uh, uh, the radio, he had like a little, I mean, he went to high school there. He was a high school kid, but Lee Hazelwood was also there. And so was Waylon Jennings. And they were all three on the same radio station. And um, this is obviously well, well before my time, you know? So it, for me though, it feels like this weird mythic thing, like their their spirits. I mean, uh, Dwayne Eddy's still with us, but um, you know, their spirit sort of haunts that area. So I always find it I find it so interesting that one of these sort of paragons of of a surfy style, because I mean, Dwayne Eddy is definitely associated with a surfy sound, you know. But it's like he was pretty far from the ocean, you know, speaking, uh, well, geologically it tw- speaking. It was, it was twang more than surf. And I always, I always heard the tumbleweeds in his music. You know, oh, big time. Yeah. And also, also you're, you know, you had Sanford Clark and you had Al Casey, all those guys working out of Phoenix. And, and I actually went to Coolidge just because I wanted to go to the town where Joanne Eddie got, got his start as a guitar player. What were, what were your impressions there? Did you have any of, of Coolidge? When was that? I remember I found the bar where he played. There was a music club there a long time ago. I can't remember the name of it, like the Stardust or some kind of name like that. Or I can't remember what it was. It wasn't by chance the Galloping Goose, was it? That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, it's yeah. the first bar I ever got kicked out of. Right on, uh, and I wasn't, and I wasn't even, I wasn't even drinking. <laughs> I just, I was, I was underage. So, uh, anyway, <laughs> well, congratulations. <laughs> I share that. Yeah, uh, no, that's amazing. And yeah, I, I know Waylon played there too. You know, it was definitely uh, crazy to think, and it's, and it's still there, still in operation, which is a wild thing in this day and age. You know, um, but yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Al Casey. Uh, you know whatever maybe i've got a little bit of a chip on my shoulder uh but i always think that like you know between al casey and lee hazelwood um arizona deserves some credit for the uh the overall sound of of the sort of the wall of sound wrecking crew vibe right because al casey was just absolutely one of the key guys in that in that crew yeah and they would record stuff in phoenix and then go to um la to do overdubs like yeah. um like stalking by Dwayne Eddy. They cut that in Phoenix and then they took the master to LA and they added the Rivingtons on background vocals and Plaz Johnson on sax. Yeah. I I could go on and on. Oh yeah, I know I know I know you could. I'm familiar with your show and I love it. Yeah. And I, and and I uh <laughs> We would we would maybe start to lose certain listeners, but um, before we do, but but before we do that, I do I do want to thank you for hanging out, Vin. It's been a lot of fun uh, rapping with you, and this new record is great. And I um, I really hope that that lots of people go and, and check it out. You know, I know like the 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 vinyl release is is it tends to be kind of limited, but it's coming out with like a wider release, so people will be able to track it down and listen on. Uh, listen wherever yeah. but uh but, and it, and it ju- just came out in spain and I'm, I'm heading over there in two weeks to do 10 shows in 10 cities in 10 days oh my gosh that's some uh that's some that's like intensity in 10 cities or whatever yeah exactly it's gonna be great <laughs> well i hope you have just the best time ben and i appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us thanks so much for doing it yeah it's always great to talk to you absolutely all right well we'll talk again soon great awesome
Thanks so much for listening to Transmissions. You can find show notes and more at Aquarium Drunkard. And you can support the podcast by checking us out on uh, Patreon. Aquarium Drunkard is an independent situation, so your contribution means a lot and helps us keep doing it. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce the show. Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton. Our show is executive produced by Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard founder. Don't miss his Aquarium Drunkard show every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. PST on Sirius XMU. It's always one of the best things going. Transmissions is part of the TalkHouse podcast network. I'm at Jason B. Woodbury on social media, so feel free to reach out. I love hearing from listeners of the show, and I'd love to hear from you. Drop me a line and let me know what you like about the show, what you'd like to hear more or less of, whatever you want to share. Uh, next week on the program, I will be joined by Chicago indie trio Horse Girl. Um, they just signed to Matador Records. Uh, it's a really great talk. So uh, come back for that one, uh, and uh, we'll speak soon. This transmission is concluded. Concluded.